0: Heavenly Father, I just want to ask, Lord, for a measure of your Holy Spirit. I want to ask, Lord, that you would hide me behind the cross, and most importantly, Lord, that you would take control of my mind and my mouth. I ask, Lord, for guidance, and most importantly, Lord, for ears that would hear. Lord, I pray that every person within the sound of my voice, Lord, will hear something that will actually relate to whatever they may be struggling with or whatever a family member may be struggling with, but most importantly, Lord, that they will see the power of Jesus Christ still is alive today and doing um, amazing things and that it would give us hope and confidence lord in the word of god in jesus name i pray amen so again we want to really talk about the issues that are going on not only in the world but definitely inside our church raise your hand if you've heard from your church or even from church members or from things that you've read from our church that homosexuality is acceptable by god anyone because it's moving, it's it's coming. There's actually a pro-gay movement, we're gonna talk about that a little bit, that's actually been around for over 30 years. We've only been here nine years. But they've been moving this message and they have a film that they put out as well, uh, several years ago, and this movie has moved hard so much and it's based on emotions and feelings. And the whole idea is you sit there and you see these three individuals that are that are Adventist gays and you look at them and you you laugh with them, you cry with them and you look at their situation and you say, Oh, yeah, we need to have compassion on them. And so the next thing you know, you start buying into the emotion and you just start sacrificing the word of God. And instead of elevating these people and showing them the power of Jesus Christ to overcome and to be redeemed, we just accept them in their sin. Brothers and sisters, that is not love. That's called lost. You can love somebody right to the gates of hell by allowing them to think that the word of God is no longer null and void or that the word of God is null and void. And so coming out ministries, our desire is to not only inspire but to enlighten the church. We want to enlighten the church and let them know that the power of God is still alive today through examples and also to equip the church through resources and also presentations. And so, again, we believe that the power of God is still moving, but if we cut people off from the redemptive part of the story, you've only brought them halfway because love is definitely important. We have to be more loving and kind than we've been, and we have a terrible reputation of being cruel and heartless but we still have to hold on to the truth. We don't just throw away the truth because some people call it unloving. We have to show that the truth is not only loving, but it's got to be better than what the world is handing out. And that is what we're going to talk about in the next two days. Can I get an amen? Amen. I see a lot of color in this room and I belong to a black church, so please don't hold back. All right, LGBT and the church, take a look at this image. This is a Protestant church in Holland, and I was coming up out of the parking garage with my colleague Ron Woolsey, and my (laughs) mouth just dropped open. This is a Protestant church, and they were hanging the gay flag on the church, And, and in Europe, what they do is they build the church, and then they build the city around it, so the church is smack dab in the center of the square, and this is what everybody sees, and I said to my Adventist friends that were taking us to tour this city, I said, Wow, that's shocking. And they go, oh, they do it every year. Can you see how they had become anesthetized themselves to images like this? But let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, it's coming. As a matter of fact, it's here. I was walking downtown. I went to Staples last night to get me some stickers for, my, for the movies that I want to give out. But while I was there, the whole street was lined with the gay flags. I was in probably what I would think is one of the most gay areas that I've been in in many years. And as I'm watching this, Ellen White talks about the miasma of the city. The miasma basically is talking about the feeling, the feeling that you get from the city. And I realized that this is coming around the world at a rapid pace. As a matter of fact, these, these messages weren't even able to be advertised until the very last moment for fear that there would be protesting or that there would be words that would come up against these meetings even taking place. But this is what's going on in your neck of the woods as well. Religion doesn't have a prayer. It says that when it comes to equality, LGBT activists and their judicial allies have made sure sexual behavior trumps religious freedom and liberty every time. Now I realize that when I spent 20 years in the gay culture, I was the one that had to go undercover. I was the one that had to um, oppress my relationships and my identity. But now all of a sudden, 20 years after I've been in the church, I recognize now that the church is now the one that has to be oppressed when I go into a restaurant, when I stay in a hotel and I see definitely homosexual people or LGBT supportive um, things going on, I recognize that I'm the one that has to fly under radar again. Isn't it interesting how in just such a short time that all of this has become switched? And brothers and sisters, this is not going to change. This is moving forward. And we as Seventh-day Adventist Christians who know the great controversy and we know how it plays out and we know how it ends, How is it that we can be as as intelligent as serpents, but yet harmless as doves? And that's what we have to learn about this morning. We have these two positions in the church now. God hates fags. Fags die. God laughs. This has been the, the word or the information that I got in the years that I was a young Adventist. From the time that I got baptized at 15 until I walked out of the church at 20 years old. The only thing that I heard was that gays were going to burn in a hotter hell than everybody else. And that there was no hope or redemption for people like me. And while there may not have been open seminars or or sermons that were preached on the topic, however, I did hear people say, well, thank God I'm not like them. And that those words, they came and they bit. And I remember feeling to myself that, well, why would God make me gay and then tell me that there's no hope for me? I got the message loud and clear and I walked out of the church. Well, then 20 years later, through a miraculous intervention, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later, said, all of a sudden, now here I am. I'm an Adventist again. I'm still gay. I'm still struggling with same-sex attraction, not knowing what to do with all of this. But I'm defiant about the fact that I was born this way and that I couldn't change, and I prayed that God would change me, and he never did. And so now what's happened is that people are still saying the same thing. They're saying that you can't change. And that, okay, back here 20 years ago, they said you can't change and you're going to burn in hell. Now they're saying that you can't change and that God doesn't have a problem with it. Well, it's interesting that we totally flip-flop. We went from hating them to loving them, but the message never changed. The message was that they couldn't change, and the message today is that they still can't change, and that's a message straight from the devil. says by the testimony of two or three shall a thing be established and I stand before you and those things that are underneath your seat are testimonies of other individuals that have come out of the LGBT life into a relationship with Jesus Christ and so we're here to establish that if you didn't know it when you came into this room that when you walk out of this room this morning you're going to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the power of Jesus Christ is still alive today that was nice thank you and so gay flag, right? That's a symbol to the symbol to the whole gay issue. And so isn't it interesting how many colors are on that gay flag? Six. Six. All right. What does the number of six mean in the Bible? It's the number of a man. Isn't that right? How many, how many colors in the real rainbow? Seven. What does seven represent in the Bible? Completion, perfection. And so there's something incomplete about this flag. And I think that we need to have compassion upon the men and the women that are falsely in this narrative that this is who they are. This is incomplete and so are they. They're not complete. My whole life was completely defined by the gay life. I drove a gay car. I lived in a gay neighborhood. I even had a gay dog. It's a little chihuahua, about six pounds. And this was my life. I was completely accepted in my identity. Nobody had a problem with it. I was a hairdresser and an aerobics instructor. And come on, guys, you can't get any more gay than that. And so this was my life. I was completely identified in that. All of a sudden, now, after 20 years of, of living this life, not only was I a sexual addict, but wouldn't it be great to know that um, all of a sudden I had got in this great relationship. I had a boyfriend with big arms and big blue eyes. He was a millionaire. We both had convertible Mercedes. I had a condo on a lake with a, with a boat. I also had a house with a pool. And I had the life of, of what every homosexual would ever want. And yet there still were moments when I would think to myself, is this really the, all that life was going to be? Was there really nothing more? And I remember thinking, great clothes, great houses, great uh, trips. I had a lot of friends. I was doing hair for television people. Uh, The newscaster for NBC was my best friend. We would travel around the world. I had everything that the world had to offer. And yet still at 40 years old, there was this thought inside my head, is this really it? So where did all this begin? I remember also in the 20 years identified as a homosexual, I would march in the gay pride parades. I remember that this was my family, and I would see the Christians with their signs that said, God hates fags. Thank God for AIDS. As a matter of fact, I came out in 1981, and in 1981 was also the year that AIDS came out. It was this mysterious disease, and there were hundreds of thousands of men that were dying, dropping like flies from this disease. As a matter of fact, I was acting out as often as three times in a day with different men and as often as three or four times a week. You do the math times 20 years. I should be dead for what I did. I had sex with men that I knew were infected with HIV, and yet it still wasn't enough to stop my behavior, and yet I stand before you. And yet these men drop like flies. I would have sex with men unprotected, and three months later they'd be dead. But I couldn't stop the addictive drive because there was something that just kept it going. There was something that I needed, something that got interrupted. And when I came to Jesus Christ at 40 years old, I said to him, I want to know why. I want to know why at my earliest thoughts that I was transgender. I want to know why at my very earliest thoughts I wasn't attracted to same sex, but I felt like I was a girl trapped in a boy's body. Why did that happen? And so I bought into the idea that I was born that way. And if somebody says that they were born that way, don't argue with them because you know what? Your reality is your, your perception is your reality. And so allow them that. But even if you were born that way, Jesus has the answer and he says, We all have to be born again. Isn't that right? We were all shaped in iniquity. We were all born into sin. So guess what? It doesn't make me better than you, but it doesn't make you better than me. We're all in this process together. So as I was growing up, Hang on a second. Got to find these. So I want to go back even further. I want to go back to the idea that when I was first born, that from my first conscious thought that I was this girl trapped in a boy's body. Where did that come from? And it wasn't until as I started walking with Jesus Christ, because there were no resources in our church, that the Lord had to bring together these sermons, different studies, even science. Science actually supports what the Bible says about identity and practice. And as I was this little child, I wanted nothing to do with my dad. My dad was angry and raging. He was a hot-headed Italian. He was abusive. But then my dad was also in the Navy. And so my dad would be gone sometimes three to six months at a time. And at a time when I really needed my same-sex parent to be, There to know what masculinity was all about he was gone but then again when he was home he was abusive so in my subconscious before I could even make a conscious choice I said if that's masculinity no thanks and so the only person left for me was my mother my mother was soft she was there she was consistent she was kind and I thought I want to be like her I don't remember making that decision, but all of a sudden I was wearing her dresses, I was learning to walk and to talk like her, and every child is born with wet cement. You don't know that you're male or female. But then all of a sudden between the ages of one and three, and who can remember that far back, you make a decision who you're going to pattern after. And if you're in a healthy home, little girls pattern after their mom and want to play with dolls and bake cookies. And little boys want to dress up like their dad and wear baseball caps and cowboy boots. All of this is healthy gender stamping so that that cement will actually take the form of masculinity or femininity because then eventually as you grow up, little girls don't like to play with boys because they have cooties and little boys don't like to play with girls because they're gross. All of that is healthy gender stamping so eventually when puberty hits you like a sledgehammer over the head, all of a sudden the sex that is the mystery becomes the attraction. Well, for me, when puberty hit, the mystery—the sex that was the mystery for me wasn't girls, it was guys. I was so affirmed by my mom and so affirmed by my sisters that the thoughts inside my head is that I should be a girl. They were much more desirable. I liked doing the things that they liked to do. The boys in school that called me sissy, queer, and fag, what they did is pushed away even further the masculine identification and affirmation that I needed. I like to say to young people that your words have the power of life and death and that when you casually call someone a queer or an idiot, those words stick and they have power and meaning. And you know what? Every time I was called a sissy or a little girl, what that did is it pushed away from me not only the desire to be identified as masculine or male, but it also made it even easier to be female. And so my life became identified in the gay culture. I was a fulfillment of Genesis 6 verse 5. Every thought inside my head was only evil all the time. I was only always looking for an opportunity to hook up for an illicit sexual situation. No hope for me. But I had three sisters that were praying for me. Now here's one of the biggest problems. If we buy into the whole idea that God doesn't have a problem with being gay, then you'll stop praying for people like me. If my sisters weren't praying for me, there's no way that I'd be standing before you now. There's no way that God could have protected me because I did not want anything to do with a God that I thought wanted nothing to do with me. And so I bought into the whole idea that God must be rejecting and he must be evil. He must be just like my dad. And so I wanted nothing to do with God and I went as far away as I could. But because my sisters were praying for me, as a matter of fact, I interviewed one of my sisters on 3ABN and I said, so what was it like praying for me all those years? And my sister looked me in the eye and she said, well, you know, it was really tough because you were pretty mean to me. And she said, there were times when I would only pray, Lord, listen to my sister's prayers for him because I can't even pray for him today. (laughs) And then I asked my sister, I said, so what was it like when you found out that I gave my heart to the Lord? And she said, well, I wasn't sure it was going to stick just being honest but I'm still grateful because I'm standing here 19 years later from the result of what those prayers manifested when the Lord was able to scoop me up out of the ideas of my own head of who I was and who God was and he began this journey with me and so if you buy into the lie that homosexual behavior is accepted by God then you'll stop praying for people like me and we will be held accountable not only for the words that we said to somebody and left them in their lost identity But also imagine the lost prayers that should have gone up in behalf of those men and women that won't be standing there when Jesus comes to take us home. Kinship. I remember there were two other guys, two other guys that the Lord brought into my life. Here I had broken up with my, uh, actually, he broke up with me. I prayed and I said, you know, as I was reading the Bible and the Bible started to talk about how homosexual behavior is an abomination, and I want you to write that note down. Write that down in the recesses of your mind. God does not condemn the person that has same sex attraction, nor does God condemn the person that is transgender, that they feel that they're trapped in the wrong sex. He condemns the practice. Why? because it pulls you away from the identity that God blessed us with. What it did is every time my auntie would take me into the bathroom and tease my hair like a girl, what it did is it gave me this great satisfaction that I could be convincing of the opposite sex. Every time that I prayed to God and I asked him to make me a little girl, the next morning I would wake up still a boy because that was the intention that God had designed. It said that in Jeremiah, before the earth was formed, I knew you. And God knew that I was to be a boy, and that was to be a blessing. And in Psalms 136, it talks about how God himself knit my delicate inward parts together in my mother's womb. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a joke. And when we're talking about the transgender issue, we're not talking about somebody with ambiguous genitalia. We're not talking about somebody that's a hermaphrodite. Just pull that out. That's a totally different situation. Somebody that's transgender is completely male and desires to be female or completely female and desires to be male. The two do not mix together. And so, in my mind, again, the abomination is that every time I dressed up as a girl, every time I behaved that way, what it did is it pulled me away from the gift and the blessing of the masculine identity that God gave me. Every time I acted out sexually with other men, what it did is it pulled me away from the ability to relate to God in a relational and intimate way. It destroyed my ability to see intimacy as nothing more than objectifying human beings for my own personal sexual pleasure. That is not God's representation of love. Do you start to see? And so God's way, again, let me go back to my phrase. God's way is not just truth. Because we got the truth brothers and sisters but it's got to be better than what the world is handing out today in the 20 years that i lived as a homosexual i was in five significant relationships and they could never give me what i wanted they could never give me what i needed because what did i need is i needed masculine affirmation they didn't have it either two men hooking up trying to receive masculinity from each other when neither one of them have any, you can imagine the futility of that. And I believe that that's what created the addictive drive for me because I was desperate for somebody else's masculinity to affirm me because I had none of my own. Do you start to understand a little bit of the depravity in the homosexual culture? Because that's what was going on in my heart. And as the Lord started to reveal that to me, I started to see that there was this deficit of masculine love in my life began with my father. Sex wasn't the problem. The problem was I needed to know that I was male because God made me a male and I needed that intimacy to be restored in me because it says in John 17 3 this is life eternal that you would know your father and Christ Jesus whom he has sent and that word know is the intimacy of a loving sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, that doesn't mean that God wanted to have sex with me, but the intimacy to be absolutely exposed and naked before God without any fear of rejection or judgment was what God wanted me to feel. And while I was engaged in that, in that um, identity and that lifestyle, there was no way that my brokenness would allow me to experience that kind of love. But Jesus broke through because of those prayers. So I found kinship, me and my two friends. We didn't know where we were. We didn't know if we were going to stay gay or if we were going to walk away from it. Maybe we could find a significant relationship and God would be all right with that. But then we found kinship and I said, hallelujah, I can have a boyfriend and Jesus. But my friend, my friend who was also being moved by the Holy Spirit, he said, but wait a minute, look at the way that they translate those verses about homosexual behavior, you know, in the Bible. And I said, I don't care. Tell me a lie. Remember in the the clip it says, tell me a lie, lie to me? That was exactly about this. Tell me that I can still have my boyfriend and my Jesus. And you know something? The Holy Spirit was patient with me. And as much as I wanted to believe this, do you know how difficult it is to walk away from a millionaire boyfriend and a salon business that's open on the Sabbath that I'm making $200,000 a year and that I had to sell back my business back to my lover and still work for him for a year and a half after we broke up? And then when he hired his new boyfriend to be the manager of the salon that I bought and paid for and I'm working there for a year and a half after we broke up and I'm now working for the manager who is my ex-lover's new boyfriend... The only way I could do that is if God was giving me something more than what I was experiencing in that life before. And God was generous and loving and kind. And so I started to realize that kinship was not the answer. And it wasn't as easy for me as like flipping a switch on the wall and saying, okay, I'm not gay anymore, I'm straight, that didn't happen for me. I still struggle with same sex attractions, but I start to understand that when same sex attraction comes it's because I start to realize that I'm not getting the love that I need or the intimacy I need from my father. And that I can go to God and I can ask God, Lord, the feelings are starting to come back. Can you take these from me? Can you affirm to me that you love me and that you made me male for a purpose and a reason? And now I realize how I can deal with the same-sex attraction that I'll probably deal with for the rest of my life. Coming Out Ministries is not a ministry to make gay people straight. Write that down in your book, too. We are here to point people to Jesus Christ. I can't make you straight. I can't make you anything. But I can connect you to the power of Jesus Christ that has the ability to change and to redeem and to restore everything that's been lost or taken away from us. That was a little weak. Thank you. Church culture. So here I am. I'm in the church, right? Like a giraffe on a cattle farm. And so everybody could see my mannerisms. They could probably understand my history. And so my church in Florida where I was baptized, it was a Spanish, black, Caribbean church, and they did not know how to let me go. They would hug me. They would squeeze me. And the men never had a problem with me. So then all of a sudden I moved to the rural hills of Tennessee and I go to my church and I start handing out my my testimony to everybody. And so as they're listening to the testimony, I thought there would be no problem in this predominantly white church. But all of a sudden, I started to feel the heat. I remember being invited to, a, uh, to one of the elders' homes for Sabbath meal. And as there were 10 people around the table and he was a doctor, all of a sudden, as he was having me as the guest, all of a sudden, he lit into me and he said, you know what, homosexuality is a choice. You chose that. You really should just keep your mouth shut. And then all of a sudden, I went to my pastor, and I was asking for a men's ministry because I needed to learn how to interact with men on a non-sexual basis. And he said, "Well, bring your idea to the board tonight, and we'll we'll pitch it to the board." There was a speaker who was going to come. We could camp out in the woods, and we would have it on Father's Day weekend. Have this great time with the guys. And so one of the elders on the board, he looked at the book of the speaker that I was going to invite, and he pointed right at me, and he said, "I don't want to be running around in the woods like a bunch of gay men." pastor never said a word the elder never said a word they allowed this man to say that to me and I got in my car that night and as I drove away I said to God I hate your church and I hate your people so God was speaking back to me and he said so why do you go I said I go because that's where the truth is and he said so what do you do when you go I said well I go to worship you isn't that what you ask and he said yeah continue to do that and learn to forgive them because they're my people too I had a lot of forgiving to do and I had a chip on my shoulder as big as a wood blank. And so as I was going to church week after week for three years, it took me three years to learn the process of forgiving those people, especially when the pastor couldn't even shake my hand for fear he might get something on him. And that there were people that would see me coming down the hall and they would avert to the right or to the left. And so I knew what that felt like. And yet God still demanded and required me to forgive them. But something miraculous happened after three years. Finally, I was doing Bible studies with these, with these two sisters, and, and they didn't like the, the big church. It was just too cold and formal. But they liked the little black church in our community. And I said to God, I said, well, do I drop them off at the little black church and go to my church? And he said, no, you've learned the process. He said, now go with them. And so I went to the head elder of this little church. It was only about 20 members there. And most of the members were his children because he was this drug addict that got converted, him and his wife. And so the whole family would go to this little church. And I walked out to this elder and I said, hey, do you have any room in your church for an ex-homosexual, ex-sex addict? And he said, well, have a seat with all the other sinners. And can you preach every now and then because we don't have a regular preacher? It was amazing the difference between how this church treated me and where I came from. And you know what's amazing? That, that white church wasn't able to give me a men's ministry that I needed. But this little black church, they didn't even know what they were doing. And the Lord started to lavish masculine love on me in a way that was healthy, in a way that was restorative and healing. God uses men and women with skin on to represent him and to offer that healing to each one of us. We have a solemn obligation to let every homosexual know that they are welcome in our churches, that they belong in our churches, and that we will walk with them until the moment that they're ready for membership and baptism. But there's a process to that. And so here I am in this little church. Let me tell you a little story. There was this guy named Willie, one-legged Willie we called him. He was a a drug dealer and uh, he lost his leg in a bad drug deal that went wrong. And so I would see Willie, you know, hobbling on his crutches uh, to the grocery store. So I would give him a ride. He was basically homeless. He lived in a house that didn't have any running water and he didn't smell really good. But being a hairdresser, I I suggested to to Willie, I said, listen, Willie, come to my house. I'll, I'll give you a bath. I'll cut your hair. I'll shave your face. I'll make you something hot to eat. So he would come over occasionally, we'd give him a bath, I'd wash his clothes for him, I'd make him something hot, and I would tell him about the goodness of what God had done for me. Well eventually I invited him to come to church, he didn't have a suit, I hooked him up, he was looking pretty clean, one-legged Willie, and wouldn't you know it, the week that we went to church was uh, communion, thank you. So in communion, of course, we exercised the foot washing, and I tell people I got 50% off because Willie only had one leg, (laughs) And I didn't expect him to reciprocate because he wasn't a member and I was so used to rejection from men that that it was okay it wasn't necessary that I be served but there was a man that saw that I needed to have my feet washed and he came up to me and he said Mike let me wash your feet I said it's okay I'm with Willie and he said no I insist Mike let me serve you and this man wasn't afraid to wash my feet he wasn't afraid to humble himself to me he wasn't afraid to touch me and as he started to bathe my feet He had no idea the power of what he was doing, but he said these simple words. He said, wow, Mike, I love your enthusiasm for Jesus. What a blessing you've been in our church. And as he was bathing my feet, he was also bathing over me masculine healing that I never felt before. And all of a sudden, as he started to pray for me, not knowing what I needed or not knowing what was being done, but every man in that room, and there were only four, were also moved by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit said, get up and touch him. And as my friend started to pray for me, as he humbled himself at my feet, every other man in that room came over and they just put their hand on my shoulder as my brother prayed for me. And for the first time in my life, I realized I was not part of the ladies' lunch club anymore. That I was being included by the men and I was being affirmed by the men in my church. You know, Ecclesiastes 4 verse 10 says this, For if they fall, his friend will help him up. But woe to the one who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. We have brothers and sisters, men and women, children in our churches that have fallen down and they're going through the motions hoping that someone will notice them, hoping that someone will, will help them up and yet here we go about our business, not recognizing that we have brothers and sisters in our own churches that need to be affirmed, that need to be loved and that loving somebody or affirming them does not mean that you condone their lifestyle But are you willing to sit next to them? Are you willing to walk with them, whatever their issues are, until the issues are addressed by the Holy Spirit? Our responsibility is to create a safety net so that these brothers and sisters can find the love that they need in the arms of Jesus. And if we reject these people, if we push them out of the church, then we will be held accountable for the blood that was wasted that Jesus shed on that cross for them. I was in South Africa just a couple of months ago, and I was speaking to the pastors. And one of the pastors said that there was a brother that came into the church on communion Sabbath and he was dressed so flamboyantly everybody assumed that he was gay. Nobody even knew, but they assumed he was gay and they said, you know what, you should probably leave because you're not welcome here. The church actually kicked out this person and this rage came over me, as you can imagine. And I said, what right? Do we have to cut somebody off from the fruits of what Jesus accomplished on that cross because we judge them according to what they look like? You didn't even know if this person was gay and even if they were, are they not deserving of the merits of what Jesus accomplished on that cross? Can you see how we judge people? Can you see how we treat people even from leadership positions? How we cut people off and we have to recognize that guess what? We're all miserable, rotten sinners. <laughs> We're all the same at the cross. Your sin is no better than my sin. We're all the same. It's Jesus we have to look up to. And that when I see my nakedness, when I see my wretchedness, then guess what? Yours pales in comparison to whatever I've got. And wouldn't it be great in the church if we could get rid of the condescension and just say, I don't know what you struggle with, but I got my struggles. And I've been in church all my life for maybe three generations or maybe just a week but you know what? Jesus says he's got the answer, and let's find that out together. Wouldn't that be novel if we could get rid of the condescension that's in Christianity? These are some quotes that you may want to take a picture of the screen. I think these are powerful. This is a woman, a lesbian activist, a gay lesbian activist, and she's not even ashamed of the fact that she's gay. It's her right. It's her choice, but this is what she says. If you or I said this, This would be considered hate speech. She says, Is the gay identity so fragile that it cannot bear the thought that some people may not wish to be gay? Sexuality is highly fluid and reversals are theoretically possible. However, Habit is refractory. Once the sensory pathways have been blazed and deepened by repetition, this is a phenomenon that's obvious in the struggle with obesity, smoking, alcohol, and drug addiction, but helping gays to learn how to function heterosexually if they wish is a perfectly worthy aim. And so now what's happening is we have this movement coming into the church saying that gays can't change, they never could, and that that's hate speech to tell a gay that they can change. So you're telling me that the redemption and the power of Jesus Christ is hate speech? Who do you think that message is coming from? Say his name. That's right. That's a message from the devil. And then it goes on. She says something even more powerful. She says homosexuality is not normal. On the contrary, it's a challenge to the norm. Nature exists, whether academics like it or not. And in nature, procreation is the single relentless rule. That is the norm. Our sexual bodies were designed for reproduction. No one is born gay. The idea is ridiculous. Homosexuality is an adaptation, not an inborn trait. So while she acknowledges this, and of course we all agree with her, she still has the right to choose what she wants. Isn't that fair? I still have to respect her for choosing to be a lesbian. And we should never be condescending. We should never disrespect somebody for their choices, but it doesn't negate what the truth is. And that the truth has to be delivered in such a way where it's invitational rather than rejecting and judgmental. God's word is clear, and He can save, and He does, and He will. Shouldn't that be our mantra? Shouldn't that be what we're giving out to the world? Gender identity and defensive detachment. So again, this is me, right smack dab, in the middle of six girls. These are my aunts, and then this one and these two are my sisters. That's who I played with. That was my early identity. So again, I was constantly having these knots the devil was putting in the robe of my early existence, the rejection of my dad, being surrounded by girls, not having a brother, not having an uncle, having a father that was gone three to six months at a time, and a father that was abusive. It seems to me that the devil had a definite intention. Now listen, every child is born. God has a purpose and a plan for them, but so does the enemy. And the enemy was effective in using different things that were shaping my life, my early years, that I thought that I was either born this way or I thought that I had absolutely no control. There was also something else going on called the hereditary sin. And actually science affirms this in epigenetics and cellular memory. Science says that when the DNA comes together with the male and the female, it brings with it the history and characteristics of three to four generations before that. Let me use my parents as an example. I'm the fourth generation, and so my mom and my dad, they came together, and they conceived four children together. But my mother, she was actually molested by her father when she was a young girl. And her mother was raped by her stepfather, and my mother's grandmother was actually a prostitute. So you can see just on my mother's side alone that there was a history of sexual sin. And while the Bible, nor does science, confirm that I was born gay, however, science does say, and the Bible, says that the hereditary cycle of three to four generations had an influence on me. Now, Ellen White makes it very plain that I am not held accountable for the sins of my parents except as I indulge in them. At 16 years old, I was cleaning my father's offices. My father was the head elder of the church. I was a student in academy, and I found my father's pornography magazines. And here I am, the son and the father are looking at the same porn, and yet here was the hereditary cycle also taking place as well. My father was addicted to pornography. He was also a sexual addict. Even though my parents were uh, virgins when they got married, my dad was in the Navy. He was exposed to sexual situations, became a sexual addict. Married four times, and three of those wives he left because he was having an adulterous affair. My father was also the head elder of the church. Can somebody explain that to me? So anyway, I knew that my father's religion wasn't working for him either. I knew that my father was struggling with these issues, And yet I thought that the same God that he served was the same God that I served because I wasn't getting the victory either. And so I thought that God was impotent or I thought that religion was basically for people to hide behind. Because as I saw my father the fraud, I also saw my own behavior as a fraud. And so that pushed me even further away from church culture. More emasculation and degradation that came from the kids in school that called me sissy, queer, fag. Again, the words have the power of life and death to push away from us the identity that God wants each one of us to be affirmed in. And so I want to also share that when I speak to young kids, I tell them that when you call somebody an idiot or a dummy, and those words that I heard from my dad, my dad may not have called me queer or or gay, but he called me idiot, stupid, dummy, moron, and those words still follow me even in my 50s. So how do we identify? So you're looking at this man. He's got a lot of muscles, right? He's working out hard. Look at those guns. Nice shoulders, right? And he works out strong and confident. But what is surprise you to know that that this guy is actually a girl? You're looking at a woman that hasn't even had any surgeries. Talking about the transgender cycle. This is a commercial that goes on in the United States, talking about a television show, and this little girl that you see in the pink raincoat that's actually a little boy who's struggling with transgender ideation i want to talk about the next wave that's going to hit the church it's already hitting the church is the transgender movement the transgender movement has the ability to even destroy exponentially more than what the gay issue is doing to the church If you can't tell who's a male or a female, if you can't tell who's a guy or a girl, then you can't tell who the mother or father is, nor can you tell who the husband, wife, sister, brother, son, or daughter is. And remember that the sexual identity was not only a blessing in the Garden of Eden before sin existed, but the complementarianism between one man and one woman in a sexual relationship was the fullest expression of the Godhead. And so the devil knows that if we can destroy our ability to identify as male or female, You can not only destroy the ability of the image of God, but you also destroy the family which God himself set up in the Garden of Eden. So what you're looking at here is you're looking at a picture of Jamie holding a box of of the hormones. So Jamie is now going to start on testosterone, and through this process, this is who Jamie became. Now, if you're looking at this Jamie, that's not her brother, that's her. If you're looking at Jamie without any surgeries and just from the hormones alone, if that person came into your church, would you let your daughter date him? Think about it. Do you see the confusion of what this is going to bring into the church? Look at the transition of Jamie. You can see the development as she starts to take the hormones, how her nose becomes more masculine. You start to see the development of facial hair around her chin. The facial features become stronger, less full. And look at that. This is just what the hormones do alone without the surgeries. And so even with the surgeries, that people can be very convincing and can very much look like the opposite sex, and yet they still, no matter what you do to the body, no matter how you mutilate it or attempt to change it, you cannot change the DNA that courses through your veins. I think we should stop. Do do we need to take a break in between the sessions, or can I just go right on? Keep Keep going? Is that okay? Is that all right with everyone? Y'all don't get a break, so you gotta stay, <laughs> got to stay here, all right? So this is actually what's going on now is we have what's called a non-binary. Does anyone know what it is? Of course you do. You're young. Young people know exactly what these terms mean. Us older people, we had to learn there's now over a 100 different ways that you can identify now, and we're all supposed to know it. In New York City alone, you can have a $500,000 fine if you do not call somebody by the proper pronoun that they desire. I just have to keep my mouth shut because there's no way I can learn all hundred of them. However, this is what's going on and that now what's happening is that we're making the truth into a lie. In Isaiah 520, it says, woe unto them that make a truth a lie and the lie the truth. So now what's happening is these people are saying that I'm non-binary, meaning that I identify according to what's in my mind. That's exactly how I live for the first 20 years of my life. They have laws to protect children like me. At six years old, seven years old, they, they actually, a child can come forward and say that I'm a girl trapped in a boy's body. And the government will step in against the will of the parents and allow the child to take these hormones that are not only creating a firestorm of hormones in the body. Because imagine if my body naturally produced male hormones and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm throwing estrogen at them, female hormones, not only is that going to create the storm inside my body, but imagine what it does to my mind. The emotional damage, the emotional traumas, they found that the suicide rates among transgenders are 30%. And attempted suicide, 41%. Those are the highest rates of suicide among any group of people. Why? Not because they are in the wrong sex, but because these surgeries and these hormones do not give these people what they desire. Because, again, I can mutilate my body to make it appear female, but the bottom line is is the blood that courses through my veins is still male. Does that make sense? Now that they put these people on these hormones, they're going to have to be on them for the rest of their lives. They have not done conclusive studies to find out what happens when you give a six-year-old hormones opposite sex hormones. And the whole idea is to retard the puberty process so that by the time they're 15 or 16 years old that they can have the complete sex change that they desire. But along with these hormones, they have to put them on cancer resistant uh, medications because the cancer rates increase exponentially when you go on these hormones. So not only does it increase your rates of cancer, but it also shortens the expectancy, the life expectancy, all because of just the hormones alone that they're going to have to be on for the rest of their lives. There was a young boy in England that came up to his mother, eight, nine years old, and said, I'm a girl. Single mom didn't know what else to do. She put him in therapy. They started putting him on these uh, hormone-rejecting drugs. And so he developed natural breasts. And his voice didn't change, so he didn't develop the Adam's apple. But all of a sudden, at 13 years old, he came to the reality that, wait, I made a mistake. I am not a girl. And his mother stopped the hormone treatment but she had to have the breast removed and then now he has to go to a voice coach to learn how to deepen his voice naturally all because of the damage of what the hormones do because you allow a child to determine what their sex is? I didn't even know what my favorite color was from week to week. Like that changed like water and you're gonna tell me that I can determine what my sex is? Do you guys remember when you were kids you couldn't even tell the difference between reality and fantasy? And you're going to allow children to make a determination of what their sex is? Can you imagine how we are polluting not only their minds, but their ability to separate reality and fantasy? I fantasized about being a girl. I was one of those children. If they had the sex changes available today, like back then as they have today, I would have been standing first in line. But all of a sudden, something happened at 20 years old, and they've found, they've done studies, that children are the same-sex attracted or even transgender. If eventually, through the maturation process, they just mature, they get to their mid-20s, and all of a sudden, they don't struggle with it anymore. They found that 80% of children that identified as homosexual or bisexual, that by the time they were in their early 20s, they were completely heterosexual through no course of action of any um, um, therapies or or medications or modalities. It's because the mind just naturally matured. I remember when I told my sister at 20 years old that I was gay, she said she, she thought that she might be gay too. When she was going through puberty and her body was changing, the hormones were being thrown at her, she would look at these young girls in gym class and she would say, wow, they're really beautiful. And then she thought, well, am I gay for thinking that they're beautiful? And through her own reasoning, she came to the deduction that, no, they're just beautiful. It doesn't make me gay. I just, I don't want to have sex with them. I just found them beautiful. So you can tell that during adolescence, there's a lot of things that are going on. And if left up to take their own natural course, 80% of them naturally find that they're attracted to the opposite sex normally and healthily. And so now we have these laws in Canada and in the United States that go, it's against the law to actually counsel somebody that's younger than 18 years old that they could be straight. You can counsel them that they can be gay, but you cannot counsel them that they could be heterosexual. And so again, we block the ability to help guide people into healthy sexual identity, and the enemy knows exactly what he's doing. We have children, we have young men and young women that are experimenting, whereas before they never even would have have thought about it. We have young men like jocks that are on the football team that never would have thought about it before that are now identifying as bisexual because now it's kind of the, the new drug. It's like, well, if you're straight, you should try gay sex. If you're gay, you should try straight sex. And the whole idea for the enemy is to just blur the lines completely, and we're seeing this being done in society today. So now, the idea of non binary. I want to go back to this video clip. This is a girl, and she basically, in a very condescending way, says that biology is outdated. Come on, we need to get with it. It doesn't even matter anymore what living meat skeleton you've been born into. She just called the creation of God a meat skeleton. You're not what your parts are, you're what your feelings are. Don't be afraid to be yourself. Hello? Do you see the contradiction in this? It's just laid all over the place. There's now a hospital in San Francisco that says that a doctor does not have the right to find on the chart whether that patient is male or female. If that patient has a a tubal pregnancy or if that patient has prostate cancer... You do not have the ability to find out what their sex is so that you can determine what the pain is. Do you see how ridiculous this is? But, but this is what's coming. So if we can totally destroy the ability to identify as male or female, who wins in the end? It's the enemy, right? That now what we've done is we've made the truth a lie and the lie the truth. I was looking on Amazon and I found these books for preschoolers. I don't know why I was looking at preschooler books, probably because that's the level of reading that I could handle. But I was looking at these books, and all of a sudden, I I realized that these books are geared towards preschool children. The idea is the sooner that we can educate your children, the sooner we can change their thinking and change the world. This is talking about a princess boy, and he loves his dad. His dad holds his hand and tells him to twirl. It goes on and it starts talking about his friends and playmates. It talks about how his father holds his hand and tells him to twirl in his princess leotard ballerina. And so you can see that this is definitely being geared towards chin- children to change their thinking. Did you know that in the United Kingdom alone there's been a thousand percent increase on transgender? What that means is they're not talking about therapies. They're talking about surgeries. And the medical community realized that they can make hundreds of millions of dollars because if you have um, an appendicitis, we take out your appendicitis and I never see you again. However, if you're transgender, we have surgeries, we have therapies, we have hormones. We have to see you on a regular basis. And those multiple surgeries, I can milk a lot of money out of that. And so the medical community, even though they know it doesn't give the patient ultimately what they want, What it does is it makes them tons of money. I want to talk about the redemptive process and this is a friend of Coming Out Ministries. His name is Walt Heyer. Walt Heyer was dressed up as a little girl when he was a little boy by his grandmother. She wanted a granddaughter so she would make these beautiful dresses and dress him up. It happened until he was eight years old. At eight years old he took one of the pretty dresses home. The secret was exposed. The grandmother was upset that the that the grandson exposed a secret, but he already got the message that you are worthless to me as a boy. I wanted a girl. And so then by the time he was 13, he was also being sexually molested by his uncle, more emasculation. So he never identified as homosexual. And I want to make this clear, just because somebody is transgender does not mean that they're same-sex attracted. There are just as many heterosexual people that are transgender as there are homosexual transgender people. Does that make sense? You can't just rule them all in the same thing, that every identity is just like a fingerprint. Each and every person has their different experience. My experience was different than my other colleagues, and so don't judge one person, or don't judge a whole by just one person's story. Does that help also? Don't try to figure it all out, but there are reasons why that some people could go through the exact same thing that I went through, and they would have very normal heterosexual attraction. But my perception is my reality, and there are specific reasons and things that happened in my life that caused me to go in that path. So again, uh, Walt was never homosexual. He was married. He had three children, and he was actually an engineer working at NASA. He had a very uh, good-paying job, but all of a sudden in the 40s, he couldn't deny the fact that he felt inadequate as a male, so he transitioned to become Laura. He had every surgery you could imagine. We call it the top and the bottom surgery. We actually took his male genitalia and had it mutilated to make it appear female. And even in the process, it may appear to be female, but there's a lot of complications when you take something that was supposed to be exposed to the air and then you tuck it up inside. There's a lot of yeast infections. There's a lot of atrophying tissue. There's a lot of scarring that makes it difficult to urinate or even to have sexual pleasure. There is a lot of things that go along with this and people don't even realize. And so as he went through all of these mutilating surgeries to have his Adam's apple um, reduced in his, in his forehead, um, shaved down to make it appear more female, he said it worked for a while, but eventually it didn't give him what he wanted. He didn't feel like he was truly a woman, even though on the outside he may have appeared like one. He was ready to commit suicide. He was homeless. His wife left him. His children wouldn't talk to him. His job fired him. But somebody showed him Jesus Christ, and he thought, if I made all these changes to become a female... Why couldn't they make the changes to become a male again? We have two incredible interviews that we did with Walt Hyron, Dare to Dream Network on 3ABN, and those are available on YouTube for you as well. And it's amazing to find out the information. He has a website called sexchangeregret.com. Write that down or take a picture of the screen because this is a really great resource to find a lot of information about the sex change um, debacle. I wanna end the part about transgender issue with my um, favorite story, a friend of mine named Ray. Ray was born a girl. Ray was born a little girl and she fantasized about her wedding day, but instead of fantasizing about being the bride, she wanted to be the groom. At 16 years old, she'd already been molested by kids, by boys and girls on the playground. Her parents were violent drug addicts. She came from a very dysfunctional past, but at 16 years old, she was actually living as a male in a relationship with another woman desperate to have the change because she heard the voice of Ray inside her head that said, you know what? You need to have muscles and facial hair. You shouldn't have breasts and soft skin. And she would stare at her image in the mirror for hours every day and so she moved to Seattle, Washington where she could actually pursue the sex change. And they gave her the hormones to develop the masculine uh, facial hair that you see. But they said you had to live as a man for two years before you could have the surgery. So in this process, Ray was um, starting to feel this depression. This voice of Ray inside her head would say, you know what, you're so pathetic, nobody will ever want you. You should just kill yourself. And so the thought about taking her life became so strong, she couldn't even get out of bed. She called the only person that she thought would be there for her, and that was a friend of hers that was a Christian that lived many states away. And her friend said, just come to me. And she said, well, I don't have any money. And She said, I'll pay. And and she said, I don't care if you want to be called Marissa or you want to be called Ray, I'll call you whatever you want. She said, because I want you to live. And what she did is Ray went to her friend's house and while she was there, her friend just started praying for her in private. She didn't stick her finger in her face and say, you know, you're an abomination to God. Instead, what she did is she said, Lord, heal her. Lord, show her who she is in you. Lord, reveal yourself to her. And during this process, as her friend was praying for her, this three day stay turned into three months. And every time she thought about going back to Seattle, the thoughts inside her head would be again to just take her life. So during this time, she, she thought to herself, she goes, well, my friend's praying all the time. She goes, I've never prayed before. And she said, Lord, how do you see me? And the next image inside of her mind is she saw this woman in a long flowing dress with long hair, just praising the Lord. And she said, that's not me. And she dismissed that thought. That was it. But what she did do is she started to open the word of God. And as her friend was praying for her, like my sisters were praying for me, like Ron's parents were praying for him, somebody was intervening in a way where the Holy Spirit could speak to her. One day, she heard the voice of Jesus say, you know what, you've been living as a man for a long time. Have you ever thought about embracing your femininity? She says, well, how do I do that? And she wasn't able to like a switch on the wall to flip and all of a sudden she's a girl. But what she did do is she started to allow her hair to grow. Do you know how long it takes to let hair grow? Yeah, women know. We know, right? As she started to let her hair grow, she started then to exchange the the articles of clothing in her wardrobe and make them more feminine. She started to embrace the words of Psalms 139 that God's pursuit of us, his thoughts towards us, are as countless as the sands of the seashore, and that he knit our delicate inward parts together in our mother's womb. What could talk about the transformation of identity more than Psalms 139? And as she started to embrace this, would you like to see who Ray is today? Yeah. Oh, that was lame. Forget it. I'm just going to pass this slide. Here you go. This is who Ray is today. Is that amazing? Listen, brothers and sisters, that didn't cost her a dime. Didn't cost her a dime. No, no surgeries, no hormones. This is what God does. The Bible says that, that man looks on the outside, but God looks on the, say it, heart. And so what you're seeing here is a transformation of the heart, not the body, but the body comes along with it. And you know what's so beautiful is had she done it the world's way, she would have mutilated her breasts that would have fed babies. She would have mutilated her her reproductive system to the point where she could not have children. Do you know what the one thing is that Satan wants to steal away from you? Is the one gift that would make him like God. Remember in Ezekiel, it talks about how Satan wanted to be like the most high, Right. And so what was the gift that God gave to man that he overlooked the, de- the, um, the angels with? Creation, isn't that right? That a man and a woman together in the process of one relationship with opposite sex in a couple that's committed and, and, and monogamous, that they have the power to create life, which is the expression of the life giver, the creator himself. And so you know that Satan wants to destroy anything that he can to take away this gift from men. What better way to destroy the ability to be God-like than to take away the ability to identify and to be attracted to the opposite sex? It steals away the gift of procreation because eventually Marissa was able to get married. And because she didn't have those mutilating surgeries and she didn't have those, those life-threatening pills that she was taking on a regular basis, she's actually pregnant with her second child. Can you praise God? Because again, we have to offer the world something better than what they are offering out there. We're not talking about behavior modification. We're not talking about some therapies that will actually help you to, to function as a, a person without having sex. It's about restoring that individual to who God intended them to be. And that's a divine intervention, a divine restoration. The Three Musketeers, Alfred Kinsey, John Money, and Harry Benjamin, these are the men that influence not only sexual identity, but also the transgender movement. Nobody even identified as gay, bisexual, homosexual, or transgender until after these people came through with their, um, their research. The only two ways that you can identify through the Bible is either you identify in Christ or you identify in self. And because this never was an issue before the 40s and the 50s, that's where we now have this discussion about sexuality being an identity. Never existed even before that. As a matter of fact, take a picture of this screen. Really quick, because we've got a lot to go through. Really quick. Take out your cameras. Because you want to go to this website, because these are the science and the myths and the facts of the trans movement let a medical doctor tell you exactly what's being promoted and through the media that they even deny the science and promote the lies that you're now hearing in the medical community. And so now what else is coming on the stage? We want to talk about all kinds of sexuality. So this is what we're seeing now. Now we have all of these other people in the fringe. Now that we've made gay and transgender and bisexual rights available for people. Now we have other people saying that, hey, marriage should be identified by more than just two people, that I'm not restricted to just one partner, I need two partners. And so now we have polyamory, which is on the rise now um, in our world. What about the gay identity, the gay Christian? What about that? You know, what I find amazing is how can two walk together unless they be agreed? And so this is a contradiction. You cannot be a gay and a Christian at the same time. Now, I don't want to um, neglect the fact that there are some people that sincerely think that they're okay or that they sincerely think that God loves them and that they're gay. Is that a lie? No. God does love every LGBT person. Is that fair? Can we establish that? However, even people in their ignorance, they can identify this way, but I want to talk compassionately about the fact that these two can't go together because when I put a prefix on my identity in Christ, it's no longer 100% Jesus Christ. Am I right? I'm telling you that my first identity is in my attraction, and then it's in Christ. And in Christ, he says, I'm a new creature. He said, the old things have passed away. Behold, everything becomes new. And so here's the problem. If I hang on to my gay identity, if I hang on to my same-sex attraction, then what happens is I can never leave this thing that God asked me to put behind. Let me give you a beautiful example. We have the story of Jacob. What does Jacob mean? Liar, deceiver. He was a cheat, right? And so here he is. He's wrestling with Jesus Christ all night long. And he says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And what did Jesus say? He said, what's your name? And what did Jacob say? Jacob he said I'm a liar I'm a cheat and I'm a thief but Jesus said no you're not he says your name is now Israel what does Israel mean one who has been redeemed and what's beautiful is Jacob had to acknowledge what he was. I had to acknowledge the fact that it was a homosexual, transgender person living out this life. But Jesus says, now in me, your identity is complete in me. It's no longer gay. It's no longer transgender. It's no longer cheat, liar, or thief. He says, now your name is Christian. And even though I hadn't had the opportunity to demonstrate that, even though Jacob did not have the opportunity to prove that, he said, let me give you your new name. Now walk it out in this identity. But if I drag this over, identity around with me what are the chances that I'm going to be able to leave that behind if we allow people to say that they're a gay christian then why can't you be a sabbath-breaking christian why can't you be a stealing christian why can't you be a lying christian do you see do you see how ridiculous that is that in christ I'm a new creature That he says that old things have passed away. Behold, everything becomes new. So when I accept Jesus Christ, there's no more prefixes. You're either in Christ or you're in self. Do you see the difference? Guiding families. This is a booklet that the NAD has come out with. Americans and also Canadians. This is a booklet that was given to all of the uh, teachers in the union. Do we have any teachers in here? Any pastors in here? This is a booklet that is being given out freely through the the Union. And what's really sad about it is it has incredible information in it. I have a copy of this booklet and as I was reading through it, talking to the Swedish Union just two weeks ago, What I found in it was it it was so deceptive, it was so slippery because it talks about the love we need to have. It talks about engaging in conversations and loving the LGBT individual and all of those are very good things. And the Christian church has done a huge disservice to the gay community because we've been unloving and we've been unkind. However, this booklet is filled with all of these wonderful loving examples, but it never once talks about the redemptive part of God. Never once does it talk about the restoring power of Jesus Christ. Never once does it tell a parent that they can encourage their child that there is hope beyond their same-sex attraction. What's really sad is that this book is filled with love, but absolutely no power. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, it says, They have a form of godliness, and this is filled with godliness, but they deny the power thereof. As I was looking at even some of the verses that they use, the scriptures that they use in this, in this magazine, I thought to myself, well, these are the same scriptures that I use. As a matter of fact, the quote where it says that Christ's method alone brought lasting results in Ministry of Healing, page 143, they left out the very last part. It says he met them where they were, ministered to their needs, he won their confidence, left out the redemptive power of Jesus Christ And that's the deception of this book. And it's being promoted by our leadership in our denomination. Whatever he thinks in his heart, that's so he is. As a sex addict, I couldn't go to my church. So I went to these uh, Sex Addicts Anonymous meetings. And of course, you know, the sex addicts, or the uh, AA mentality is basically this. Every time I spoke, I had to say, hi, I'm Mike, I'm a sex addict. Hi, I'm Mike, I'm a sex addict. And I said that for a year. And of course, I couldn't talk to my pastor. I couldn't talk to the elders in my church. But I could go to this group and I at least found transparency where I could at least talk about the issues that were taking me down. Unfortunately, though, I kept saying, hi, I'm Mike, I'm a sex addict. And the one thing that I wanted to leave was the same thing that I kept dragging around with me. After a year, I realized that I wasn't getting any victory, nor was anybody else in the group gaining victory, but we got transparency. And I realized that this is not a Christian principle because God says, as a man thinketh in his heart that so he is. And so I don't say, even though I may have same-sex attraction, I don't say that I'm a gay Christian because I do not practice even these things that I have inside my head or these temptations. Jesus was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. And so if I'm tempted by something, am I identified by it because I'm tempted? Thank you. No. My temptation may come until the day I die. And if Jesus was tempted until the moment he died, it's safe to say that because of the things that I participated in for 20 years, I may be tempted with those for the rest of my life. But because I don't indulge in those temptations does not make me identify in that sin. Do you see the difference? And so the same is the same application for whatever you struggle with, right? And so we cannot use the idea that somebody can identify as a gay Christian. It does not make sense. It's a contradiction. What's wrong with this picture? That's right. That's right. And so this is what's being promoted. I thought it was a really beautiful picture for a couple of years until somebody told me. The problem is is that Jesus does not cover us with the robe of righteousness over our dirty garments. What does he expect us to do? We have to take off our dirty garments. We have to expose our nakedness. And even through scripture, it talks about the scriptures about how Jesus wants to cover our nakedness. Isn't it interesting that the devil is the one that always wants to expose us, but how beautiful Jesus is the one that wants to cover us. Isn't that beautiful? Revelation 3.18 says, White garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. He doesn't want to just cover your nakedness. He wants to take it away. Oops, sorry. So again, we, we went through this. Isaiah 4, one it says, And in that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. What does a woman represent in the Bible? A church. That's right. let me see. If it's all come. There we go. Woman equals a church. And so we have seven churches, right? And what do they want to do? They want to eat their own bread. What does bread represent in the Bible? Word of God. Word of God. Thank you. What does a garment represent? our righteousness or Christ, right? And so here we, we have seven churches and they're saying that they want to eat their own bread. They want to determine what the word of God says for themselves and they want to wear their own garments, right? They want to wear their own garments and eat their own bread. But they said, give us your name to save us from reproach. That's what every church that is affirming LGBT homosexual practice That's what they're doing, is that they're changing the word of God. They're going to wear their own righteousness, and they're going to determine the word of God for themselves. But give us your name to save us from reproach. That's not salvation. That's not saving someone. That's actually loving somebody while they're still lost. Do you see the difference? That telling them the truth is not a lie. Telling them the truth is not hate speech look at biology. I was actually speaking in Germany a few years ago, and there was a doctor and his wife, and they were both doctors, and all their children were doctors, and I'm a hairdresser, okay? But I've been walking this walk, and I was invited to speak at this conference the next day, and this woman, this very smart, intelligent woman that was standing beside me with her very smart, intelligent husband, she was saying, I don't even know why we're having this conference. I don't even think I'm going to go. And I said, okay, why? And she says, well, people should love who they want to love, and she said, it shouldn't matter, right? And I said, well, you're a medical doctor, aren't you? And she goes, absolutely. (laughs) And I said, well, you know, I'm just a hairdresser. I said, but have you ever thought about the biology of homosexual sex? I go, that's a total contradiction against what God's plan is. Do you get what I'm saying? It's like, why would, why would God approve of something that is destructive to the physical body, let alone what it does to the mind and to the heart? Because there's a psychologist that, that says, you cannot do anything sexual unless you include all three parts of man. Ellen White affirms this, that we're physical, spiritual, and mental. And he says that you cannot do anything sexual without entwining all three of these ropes together. So in the sexual identity that I lived, having multiple sexual partners, I thought that that was my freedom. I thought that that was my right to experience that. But every time you have a sexual release, brothers and sisters, let me tell you, whether it's with a phone, an iPad, a computer screen, what's happening is you are actually incorporating not only the spiritual, but also the mental aspects of what's happening physical. And the devil knows it. There's nothing that controls more power over somebody than a sexual or a physical appetite because the devil knows how we were all formed. And so that's why sexual sin is heinous to God because it destroys our ability to relate to God spiritually, mentally, and even physically. And so it's not just a gay thing, it's a sexual sin thing. Does that make sense? Marriage and the Sabbath. Marriage and the Sabbath had their origin. Twin institutions for the glory of God and the benefit of humanity. This is from Testimonies on Sexual Behavior, Adultery and Divorce, page 79. Talking about the fact that isn't it interesting that the two twin institutions that were established in the Garden of Eden was marriage and the Sabbath. So we know that marriage is under attack with the LGBT issue. Now all kinds of people are wanting in. Pedophiles are wanting in. We have um, polyamory coming in. All these different things saying that that's what marriage should be defined about. So we know that marriage, as God intended it, is under attack. Well, and White says that when one is under attack, it's not long before the other is under attack as well. What if God were looking at his church to see how we respond to marriage being under attack, to know how we're going to handle it when the Sabbath is under attack? John 12, 32, what's the protocol? How do we minister to somebody who's gay? How do we minister to somebody in sexual sin? It's all the same. There's no protocol for the drug addict. There's no protocol for the transgender or the gay. It's all the same. Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. It's none of your business who somebody is sleeping with. However, it is your honor and your obligation to show somebody who Jesus Christ is. Don't focus on their sexual identity or who they're sleeping with or living with. Focus on them knowing Jesus Christ and let the Holy Spirit do his job. Isn't that beautiful? God didn't tell you to save the world. He said, create a safety net where I can save the world. And building that safety net is loving somebody, being kind to them, letting them know that we're all even at the cross. And as you express to them and show them how you live, who Jesus Christ is, then the Holy Spirit does a miraculous job. Ah, so little time and so much to share. So I want to tell you about this couple. There was this Colombian couple. They were from Colombia and they were dirt poor, and they had come illegally as immigrants into the United States. They'd become uh, members of society. They were also legal citizens, and they had a little girl. And this sweet couple, they barely spoke any English. It was very broken English. And one of the guys that, that I was friends with that was also gay like I was, he was Puerto Rican. So they were able to come you know, to communicate. And so my friend, the Puerto Rican guy, his name was Ruben, he says, hey, Mike, you should come over to this Bible study on Sunday nights, you know, with this cute little couple. And I go, "Mm, Bible study Sunday night? I don't think so. And he said, well, they serve food. And I said, okay, I'll be there. (laughs) So every Sunday night, here was Ruben and me. And then we had a third friend, this big black guy with lots of muscles, and his name was Wayne. So they had three homosexuals in their living room every Sunday night, mother, father, and this little girl about 10 years old, right? every Sunday night. I don't know how it evaded them, but we knew who we were. And so one night the wife says to her husband, she said, do you think they're gay? And he said, I don't know. And she said, should we be concerned about our daughter? And he said, it shouldn't matter because they're souls for the kingdom. And what they did is they loved us. And she said, she says, I'm so glad you said that because I've learned to love them. We studied the Bible. We, we ended up moving. We left Florida. I ended up moving to Tennessee. This family moved with me. They lived with me until they found their house. Their daughter grew up. She went to college. She went to university. She found a boy that she wanted to marry. And because we had become so tied, because we had become like family together, that when he wanted to ask for permission for her hand in marriage, she said, if you want to marry me, you have to ask my dad and Mike Carducci for my hand in marriage this is what God is asking for us to do in the gay community whether you're gay straight bisexual transgender whatever that is this family was able to do that for me they didn't just love me and give me the truth they invested in me they gave me everything that they had they not only invested everything that they had but as they were learning this process we were learning together the love that God had for each one of us they didn't view me as lower than them but they didn't see me as better than them either do you see how God can use individuals? It's not about focusing on your sexuality. It's about focusing on Jesus and sharing Jesus together. Testimonies in Sexual Behavior, Adultery and Divorce, page 84. A frightening quote. Here the servant of the Lord herself lets us know exactly what's going to be happening at the end of time, and yet there's still very little resources in our denomination for us. She says this, Satan's repetitious plot. Near the close of this earth's history, Satan will work with all his powers in the same manner and with the same temptations wherewith he tempted ancient Israel just before they're entering the land of promise. She goes on. She says, he will lay snares for those who claim to keep the commandments of God and who are almost on the borders of the heavenly Canaan. That's you and me. She says, he will use his powers to their utmost in order to entrap souls and to take God's professed people upon their weakest points. She says, those who have not brought the lower passions into subjection to the higher powers of their being, those who have allowed their minds to flow in a channel of carnal indulgence of the baser passions, Satan is determined to destroy with his temptations, to pollute their souls with licentiousness. There is no doubt that the prophet of the Lord knew exactly what was coming. I have young men and young women. I have pastors I have all kinds of people coming up to me privately letting me know about their addictions to pornography. I have people that are in charge of huge events in Europe that came up confessing that they had a sexual addiction. People that you would never suspect. And yet even in my own experience I realize the power of what these these, these, uh, handheld devices have over me. I have accountability software on every single device that I own. All because I know that on my own I do not have the strength and the power that I need To avoid being slimed. There's some horrific statistics that are going on in our church today. It's not just an LGBT thing. It's all sexuality. And the greatest evil that I believe that is lurking in our church right now is pornography. According to Covenant Eyes, every second $3,000 is being spent on pornography. That's $102 million every hour. Every second, three, th- um, hundred. I'm sorry. Every second, 28,000 people are viewing porn. That's 102 million viewers every hour. 70% of all men between the ages of 17 and 34 are addicted to porn, and one in three women. Pornography is so pervasive that even women aren't even excluded from this this evil. According to Covenant Eyes, the most shocking statistics that I have is that only 3% of boys and 17% of girls have never seen pornography. Pornography doesn't care whether you're a Christian or not. Pornography is out there to, to slime not only our young people, but also to take out our salvation. I was talking to a young man. He's in his late 20s now. He's a pastor. But he said at seven years old, his best friend brought to his Adventist school a picture of pornography that he printed off the family computer seven years old, and he became hooked. His mother was a nurse. His father was a pastor. They put the computer in the living room so they could watch what the children were watching. But this kid would set his alarm for 3 o'clock in the morning so he could get on the family computer and look at pornography. This is how pervasive it is. He went to two of our Adventist institutions, Southern University and Andrews University, and he said he never had to pay for sex because there were plenty of girls willing to have sex with him. There would be the girl that would be strumming the guitar Friday night at Vespers, but she was sending pictures of herself topless to his roommate. This is what's going on in our Adventist schools. Brothers and sisters, it's not a gay thing. It's a sin thing, okay? We have the Conquer series, which is... um, I have two of these products with me. They're incredible resources for helping people out of a pornography addiction. Um, I don't really have time to to share this with you, but I want to go on. For this cause, in Ephesians 5.31, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And so the, sa- the devil knew the power of what sex does. That what it is, is it's this super glue that do- glues two people together. Because what happens is whatever you're looking at, when you have a sexual release, your body was designed and it creates all of these wonderful endorphins that are actually, you know, spit into the brain and they say, wow, that was powerful. It's like heroin. So every time you have a sexual release, whether you're looking at a computer screen or you're holding your beloved, it takes a picture of whatever you're looking at. And it says, let's do that again. And so what happens is that dopamine that's released, it connects you to whatever you're having that sexual release with. That's why pornography is so addictive. And so what happens is God designed it and he put it there for a purpose. Because every time a husband has sex with his wife and he has a sexual release or she has a sexual release, it bonds them closer together. He knows that they're going to need that bonding as the body starts to change over the years, as the children come and the financial problems start to come. They're going to need that bonding to help hold them together, that the two become one flesh. Do you understand that? Okay. But it goes on in 2nd, or 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. It says, what? Don't you know that when you have sex with a prostitute, that the two become one flesh? Whether we use it in the right way or the wrong way, it works. The super glue is there to work. And that God wants us to know that specifics of having sex with just your opposite sex partner for the rest of your life that you're committed to in a relationship with God is the only acceptable glue that is going to keep you happy and healthy. (coughs) Excuse me. As a sexual addict, I was acting out as often as three times in a day with different men. And what was happening is a superglue was connecting me to all of these men and that I didn't realize it. But at the end of 20 years, the only thing that I could view a person at is how they would objectify my sexual desire. I didn't care what your name was. Don't talk to me. Let's do the sexual act and get it over with. Because it destroyed my ability to find any value in any human being. Pornography does the same. When you're looking at pornography, you're looking at somebody's son or daughter. When you're indulging in pornography, you're having sex, even though it's an image on a screen, you're denying yourself exactly what God intended you to be. He intended for you to hold the flesh of your beloved. He intended for you to look into the arms of your wife or to your husband. And as a matter of fact, I think it's really interesting to know, this is Warren Beatty, one of the greatest actors of the, the 20th century, and, and he was good looking. Look at the dude, not bad looking, very good looking. And he slept with all of the best starlets in Hollywood. He was never married until his late 50s. And so here's this man that's gone to bed with all of these beautiful girls. He had the best of the best. And yet this is what is interesting. Even though he doesn't even acknowledge God, he was interviewed by a magazine that promotes sexual expression. But he said this. He said, the best sex I've ever had was in a monogamous relationship with my wife. Even though he had all of these sexual experiences before, that even he, as an atheist, acknowledged that God's way is best. It gives you what you need. Not only was God the one that designed sex and gave it to us as a gift, he knows exactly how to use it so that it doesn't hurt us, and so how it doesn't hurt other people as well. Monogamous adultery a huge issue going on in the church today. Among Christian students, it is not considered losing their virginity if they engage in oral or anal intercourse. I find this even shocking, that somebody would actually discount the, the value of what the physical touch does in an intimate relationship with somebody else, and that this is a deception story from the enemy. But this is what's been going on for many years. Even though, even when I was in uh, Andrews University, I had friends that were having sex. I knew that they were engaging in sexual relationships. But even that is just as uh, destructive to the body as it is homosexuality. Pornography, chat rooms, dating sites. What it does is it destroys again our ability to see each other as valuable. We have single parenting all because we've walked away from the way that God designed it to be. We have young girls that are raising children. We have grandmothers that are raising their grandchildren because, again, these these children are too young to take on the parental responsibilities all because we've walked away from how God designed that sex and marriage should be. We have children that are giving birth to children, teenage pregnancies in schools, abortion, Abortion rates are just as high inside the church as they are outside in the community. I have a friend. She was 16 years old. She uh, had a boyfriend, and because she didn't have a strong relationship with her father, she ended up pregnant. Her boyfriend took her to the abortion clinic, and she had the abortion. It was over and done with in just a matter of time. But what happened is she didn't realize after that the guilt and the condemnation that would come in because she destroyed and killed that baby's life. Even though she went on to marry, she had three other children. They're all grown. Still in her 50s to this day, she struggles with the guilt of what she did that day when she was 16 years old. All of this, again, because we've walked away from the standard of what God established, healthy sexuality to be expressed as. Every day in America, even if if your sins don't give you away, eventually, sometimes even the physical abnormalities of what sexual sin does will give us away. 10,000 teenagers in, in America catch a sexually transmitted disease every day from Adventist home page 19 it says the family relationship should be sanctifying in its influence Christian homes established and conducted in accordance with God's plan are a wonderful help in forming Christian character parents and children should unite in offering loving service to him who alone can keep human love pure and noble We have two individuals that are now working with Coming Out Ministries. This is Harrison Umana. He's from Costa Rica. He was an elder in his church. He was addicted to pornography, masturbation, premarital sex. And he recognized that through Coming Out Ministries that he needed the help of what we had. He recognized that this was not just an LGBT ministry, but a ministry talking about sexual purity. He's now become an associate speaker for us, and he also speaks with us and translates with us. And and our ministry has taken on a new development as well. I was in Cuba two years ago, and I was working with this young woman named Kizia Chisholm. And she was actually one of the speakers that was speaking to the people in Cuba. She was involved in her youth group, and as she started to hear our stories about coming out of homosexuality, uh, pornography addiction, sexual addiction... She came to me privately, and she, she confessed that she was actually having sex with some of the members in her youth group. And she was addicted to pornography. She was also experimenting uh, with bisexuality. And I looked at her, and I said, well, you know what the Bible says about sex, don't you? And as innocently as she could, she responded back, and she says, well, not really, because the church never talks about it. That was when my eyes were open is that by our silence, by our refusing to talk about these issues that are going on YouTube and and the Internet is teaching our young people what sexual expression is all about. And while the church is silent, we're actually giving permission for the world to influence our church members from within. Kezia, from that point on, that was two years ago, she was addicted to porn, masturbation, adultery, and bisexuality. And in that time, the Lord brought her into victory, and she now also is another um, associate speaker for Coming Out Ministries. And as a matter of fact, um, these are their testimonies. And so if you see them on your chair, uh, this is Kezia's testimony, and this is also Harrison's testimony. The the other one that I put on there is actually a copy of mine. These are tracks that we actually give out to help promote the ministry and also to let people see testimonies, all right? I want to talk about this, Arena of War, This is actually a young woman's experience about how she grew up in a conservative Adventist church and and family. Not only was she conservative in her values, but she had made a decision that she wanted to be a virgin on her wedding night. She also, at about 15 years old, she had um, uh, an actual um, issue with pornography. She was basically curious why all these guys were talking about pornography. She went on the internet. She found it. She also had a struggle with it and how she was able to break free. But she talks very openly, and she even puts some statistics in here talking about the struggle with pornography, but also when she uh, determined who she was going to marry, about how that sexual sin also came back into her relationship, and how they were able to overcome that, and the damage of what pornography does in a relationship, in a committed, uh, loving Adventist relationship. I I think for a young person, this is an amazing resource. I would recommend that you write this down. Arena of War... And again, her name is Jess Ventura. A very powerful story. We also, again, have the uh, testimony of Ron Woolsey. And we also have uh, the second book that he wrote, Straight Answers to the Gay Question. This is a compilation of over 20 years of question and answers that he's compiled into a resource. So we have those available for you as well. So I have a question for you. How far does a door have to be open? If the door was open just an inch, how much of the snake could get in through the door? The whole snake, right? As a matter of fact, living in Tennessee, I had a screen door that just wouldn't close all the way. And so it would gap about an inch like that. But I didn't think it was a problem. So I'd leave the screen door open on a warm day and so that the air could kind of flow through. Well, all of a sudden, one day I was sitting there eating my breakfast. And a friend of mine that was over, she said, look what's between your furniture. And in between two of the wall units, there was a complete uh, skin of a snake the whole snake. So this snake had come in through the inch of that door and had gotten in between my furniture and actually shed this skin. Well, you know, that night I looked all over for that snake and closets and bedrooms and everything else. And that night as I prayed, I said, Lord, you know where that snake is and I don't, and I'm going to bed. (laughs) I never saw it. But again, we need to make sure that we have closed all of the access for the enemy to get in to our camp. And one of the ways that the enemy has gotten in is through this love message that loving people means that we accept them in their sin temptation or that we legitimize a sin and give it a title, meaning like gay Christian. If you allow somebody to be identified as a gay Christian, what you've done is you've taken away the sin identity because what does God say in Jeremiah? He says, only acknowledge your sin, right? Only acknowledge your backsliding. And so if we don't acknowledge it as a sin, then we have nothing to confess. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just not only to forgive us, but to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All of our unrighteousness. So the only thing that he asks us to do in this verse is to just confess our sins. Isn't that what he asked? So if you confess your sins, but you don't believe that homosexuality is a sin temptation, if you don't confess it, then we've cut off the process of what God wants to do for each one of us. You start to see that, how identity is important. We had an opportunity to talk to Andrews University Seminary people, and they had come up with a statement. And, and, and I like to think that because they weren't aware of, of what a, um, how much permission that gives somebody an identity, that through coming out ministries, we pled with them that if you allow somebody to, to legitimize their temptation and give them a title then what you've done is you've taken it away and you've allowed that door to become open just an inch to let the snake come in. Because now what's happening is they're making statements that, well, it's okay. Even the Swedish conference, they made a statement. They say, it's okay to be identified as gay, but just don't practice it. Does that sound like redemption and restoration to you, brothers and sisters? Because you know something? I'm not buying in that. When I came into a relationship with Jesus Christ, I wanted complete healing. And you mean to tell me that you can heal somebody heterosexual but you can 't heal me and I thought that 's not fair if you have if you 're going to offer redemption and restoration to somebody else, it has to be across the board otherwise he's no God at all right? Do you see the power of what we 're doing and so we have to hold on to the party line not just because it's truth but because it 's better than what the world is handing out. Unfortunately, if we make these these um, these uh, If we start to to draw away the line and the definition of what sin is, then eventually there are many other things that are going to come with it as well. Isaiah 520, it talks about, it says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What we recognize also that's happening at the end of time, we know that there's going to be a dividing line. We know that there's going to be a polarization in the church. I believe that that's why many of you are here at GYC. Is that many of you are, are convicted that we're living in the end times? And so, how is it that the gay issue can be this dividing in the church? When you look in the Bible, what was the last situation that happened before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed? It was the homosexuals outside of Lot's house, right? And they hear they were clamoring for the angels, and so Lot even offered him his virgin daughters, which I don't even understand that, but. What he did is he helped them or offered them the, the healthier alternative. I don't know, but but even that they refused. And so Sodom and Gomorrah then was destroyed. It's interesting to me, and it's not prophetic, and I'm certainly not prophesying here, but a few years ago it hit me. What if the gay issue in our world was the dividing line even in our Christianity? What if this gay issue and 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 you know, I don't know where you stand on this position, but what if just the, the issue of LGBT acceptance in our church was what would polarize the church? Because now what we have, we have these conferences that are in rebellion. We have conferences that are not following the general conference uh, guidelines of what they have done through, through prayer and also through careful uh, study. That now we have conferences that are stepping away from the very conference itself. And So I believe that, that it's not a coincidence and that we are living in times where we have to be decidedly on one side or the other. And if we give in to homosexual practice and think that, that it's okay with God, then what we've done is we've legitimized sin and we've made it even more difficult for people to come to the cross and to find the reconciliation, the redemption, and the healing that he offers for all of us. It wasn't an easy decision to make. It wasn't easy to walk away from my business. It wasn't easy to walk away from my boyfriend and the life that I created through the indulgence of the things that came natural to me. But neither was it easy for you. You had to make a decision. When you accepted Jesus as your savior, you had to put things away too. There were things that you had to give up. And you know what? Each one of us have to make sacrifices to serve God. But why would we give up anything if we weren't gonna get something better in return? Can I get a witness? Because if I would lose my job to keep the Sabbath, then God promises to give me something better. And when we take that step, when we actually make that sacrifice and push away that thing that God is asking us to put aside, if there wasn't a benefit to it, then why wouldn't I go back to it? And I believe that that's what we have to show people in the LGBT situation, or even if you're addicted to porn or whatever that is, or having premarital sex, that God's way has to be better. It has to be better. And then we have to show people, we have to remove the condemnation. We have to let them know that we're all level at the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it has all the abominations that are not going to be in heaven, right? And it talks about in verses 9 and 10, it says licentiousness, fornication, adultery. Oh yeah, homosexuality, it's in there, homosexual practice. And what I find amazing is that what we did years ago is that we took homosexuality out and we put it way up here and we said, this is the sin that God just can't stand. This is the sin that is so heinous that God can't even heal. Well, that was a message that I heard for all those years that I was walking as an Adventist, as a young person. And so there was no hope for somebody like me. I was desperate for that. I remember at 20 years old, when I came, when I came to Florida, I moved to Florida from, from Ohio after I dropped out of Andrews. And I met a girl who was also a lesbian, and she had also grown up in Adventist education. And we decided, we confided in each other, and we decided that we were going to find out once and for all, did the Adventist message have an answer for someone like us? And so what we did is we went to church. And I went to church week after week, and I would look, and I would watch, and I would study the people, and I'd say, who am I going to share my secret with? And I found this guy, and I would watch him every week, and I said, is this the guy I'm going to share my secret with? And finally, I got the courage up one day. It had been many months, and I and I went up to this guy, and I said, and he was an elder in the church, and I said, hey, hey, Steve, can I talk to you? And he said, sure, Mike, what's up? And I said, well, it has to do with women. And before I could say another word, he said something so derogatory about women. There was no way that I could trust him with my secret. And this was an elder in the church. And so I thanked him for his time. I listened to him, and I walked out of church that night. And I said to God, I'm done. I'm through. I can't get my sexuality and my religion to come together. I prayed that you would change me and you never did. And this is what you send me? I'm out of here. And so that was when I turned my back on the church. And that was when I went into the gay culture. All because, again, the message that I heard, heard was that gays were going to burn in a hotter hell than everybody else. But now, when you stop and think about it, it's like there are many other areas in there that you can find even yourself in a temptation with. And so we have distorted the word of God because we left out verse 11. Because in verse 11, it says such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been made clean, right? And you've been sanctified. And so why wasn't anybody talking to me about that verse? Because that would have made a big difference for me. And when I told you about my colleague who, who was having same-sex attraction, even though he had a theology degree in a 4.0 from Southern uh, University or Southern College, uh, he still did not know how to apply the blood of Jesus to his circumstance. And as he confessed to his wife that he was attracted to the same sex, they went to a pastor. And as they shared that with the pastor that he was struggling, (coughs) the pastor looked at his wife and said, you might as well just get a divorce because that kind can never change. What they did is they held up this principle that gays can't change and that they burn in a hotter hell than everybody else. And now after coming back into the church thinking surely that we've got this issue coming up, what if God allowed the gay rights, the gay movement to move forward so that we'd finally be forced to start talking about this very uncomfortable situation and circumstance. I believe that the Christian church did more for the gay community and more for gay rights because while we said that they couldn't change and that they were condemned, they said, great, if we can't change, then we want rights and we want the ability to marry. What if the gay, the Christian community was the one that actually did more for gay rights than they themselves? But here's the answer when we use uh, the verse 11 it says such were some of you then that right there says that even if you struggle with pornography premarital sex masturbation whatever that is God says it's all the same to him he says such were some of you and that gives us hope and that wasn't the only issue that I struggled with was transgenderism and homosexual practice I struggled also with pornography I also struggled with masturbation and sexual addiction And you know what? God had to answer each and every one of those issues as well. It hasn't been easy. It's been a hell of its own to struggle with these thoughts and these feelings. And when God gave me the victory, shortly after I'd become baptized, the Lord addressed my boyfriend. As a matter of fact, I prayed one time, and as I was reading in the Bible that homosexual practice was condemned by God, I said, if you want me out of that relationship, you're going to have to do it yourself. I'm digging in my heels, and I'm going to prove to you that I can be faithful to my boyfriend. And if you just convert my boyfriend, we would be this mighty team for you. And God winked at that and he said, I'll get right on that. And within three weeks, my boyfriend broke up with me and I knew that God had spoken. But I was still alone and I was still gay. And I remember coming home and this darkness would just settle in and I would think to myself, will I never know what it's like to love again? Will I never know what it's like to be held? Will I never know what it's like to hold someone and to lavish them with love? And during that time, I couldn't share it with my sister. She would have been overjoyed. I couldn't share it with my friends because they would have said, Mike, you're gay. Go back to your boyfriend so it was just me and Jesus Christ during that time. And as I cried and as I sobbed, it was Jesus that was holding me. And as I cried, it was Jesus that was loving me. And that kind of love started to change my acting out behavior. It wasn't like God just hit me over the head with a magic wand and it was all gone for my convenience, but I started to struggle less. As I was experiencing a love that I'd never had before, the depths that I'd never experienced before, as I was truly receiving the love that God was giving to me, that he was lavishing on me, then the sexual acting out started to drop away. And what was amazing was like God had closed off this valve of sexual thoughts even inside my head. I wasn't even attracted to, to uh, homosexuals or, or even heterosexuals. It was like it was completely gone. And during that time, there was this freedom that I'd never known before in my 40s. And unfortunately, a few years later, I thought to myself, did God take away my history and my memory? And as an elder in my church, I struggled again with pornography. And so I needed a break I needed to find that victory again but the victory was more elusive and I cried out to God and I said Lord you said that the Adventist message has everything that we need to find victory in our lives and I need that what worked before is not working now and so I went to AA for you know or for Sex Addicts Anonymous for for a whole year nothing happened there and in my frustration the Lord showed me this little ugly red book and it has a really ugly title and and for somebody that's a hairdresser, I only like the pictures, right? And so this book was called Ministry of Healing. Not appealing to someone like me. But what happened is when I opened up the first page, it said that the same Jesus that came 2,000 years ago is the same Jesus today that wants to heal men completely. Amen. Physically, spiritually, and mentally. Amen. And in the margin of my book, I circled that and I held God accountable and I said, you said that you could change me because I can't change myself. But I give you permission. I hold you accountable to your promise. And while that book never talked about the problems that I struggled with, but what it did do is it talked about a Savior that had already won for me the victory. And that if I struggle today, I can have the answer for my struggle today. It doesn't take weeks or months or years to overcome this. I can have overcoming victory today by claiming what Jesus has already won for me 2,000 years ago on the cross. And that book I've recommended to people around the world, to girls, girls that are struggling with porn addiction in their early 20s, sobbing to me knowing that they're not ready for marriage because of this, this insidious um, issue that they struggle with, pastors in South Africa that are struggling with pornography addiction. This book has not only found healing for me, but also for them as well. God has given our church everything that we need to find overcoming victory for whatever we struggle with. Okay, Romans 13.10. It says that love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. We've got to change our attitude about this. We have earned the reputation of being haters, of being um, um, self-righteous. And what we have to do is we have to recognize again that if we're all on the same level field, if we're all on the same playing field, then what we have to do is we have to offer something better to somebody. We can't be condescending and say, oh, poor little homosexual, maybe God will have some mercy on you. We have to get on their level and say, I don't struggle with what you struggle with, but I struggle. Mm. And that to admit to someone that we still struggle, that, but that we look on Jesus and that we focus on Jesus and that he has the answers for us. Doesn't that make sense? Wouldn't that be much easier to receive than somebody making a judgment about you and saying that you need Jesus? We all need Jesus. So our vision statement at Coming Out Ministry is this. It says, to ignite an unquenchable movement, restoring all men and women back to the image of their creator God. If you remember, the thing that was established before sin even entered the land was in the Garden of Eden, marriage was established, and the Sabbath. And so we know that throughout the Bible, all the way to Revelation, that we know that where sin entered in Genesis, that in Revelation, God wants to restore man completely to who he was back in the Garden of Eden. Isn't that right? So doesn't it make sense that at the end of time, the sexuality is going to be the issue of the day? That if we can destroy the image of God through through transgenderism, through homosexuality, bisexuality, whatever's that, polyamory, pornography sexual acting out, even monogamous adultery, then doesn't it make sense that God wants to address all of these things, but in a way where he has a people that are restored. And I believe that the church is gonna look drastically different at the end of time. Some of the issues that we're dealing with in the church right now, because it's already coming in, is that there's a, uh, a woman and she has a son and her son is in his 20s. He was never gay, but he was transgender. He was attempting suicide. He has a little boy that calls him daddy, but he felt that he needed to be a woman. She paid for his surgery. He went to Thailand. He now came back as a woman. His little boy still calls him daddy, but now she's concerned. The mother is concerned about her son that became her daughter because she said he's still attracted to women. So now that he's her daughter, if he's still attracted to women, then that makes him a lesbian. Do you see how confusing all of this is? And so I shared with this woman, I said, there's nothing wrong with his attraction. And and by the way, let me point out, how I see myself is different than what I'm attracted to sexually. Do you see the disconnect there? Just because somebody is transgender does not make them gay. Because they're transgender is how they view themselves. But what I'm attracted to is different from that. So here's this man that became a woman, but there was nothing wrong with his attractions to the opposite sex. But now that he appears as a woman, the mother thought that he was losing his salvation because now he's a lesbian, so if you understand again that what was his DNA is still male, that even though he's mutilated his body to appear female, there was nothing wrong with his attractions. Are you following that? second situation is a woman had an affair with a with a man that um, that she worked with, and they had a sexual relationship and after three times of having a sexual relationship, this man confessed to this woman that he was actually a female, and so this the the girlfriend, I know, your eyes. This woman called me and she said, am I gay because I had sex with somebody that I thought was a man that was actually a woman? And she had feelings for this person, but didn't know it was a woman, thought it was a man. And can you imagine the confusion? So again, when you step outside of what God's design is for us, it creates all kind of confusion and all kinds of dysfunction. And so had she not had sex with a person she wasn't married to, She would have gotten to know this person long before that and maybe she would have found out that this person was actually a female and not a male before that. Third situation that's already happened is a young boy, 13 years old, who's transgender, which means the mother's already painted his room pink and filled the closet with pretty dresses. And this little boy wants to go to summer camp. So what do you do? What side of the camp do you put him on? Do you you force him to dress as a boy and then put him on the boy's side and expose him to the taunts and the teasing of the boys? Or do you allow him to dress as a girl and put him on the girl's side and expose the girls to male genitalia? So you can imagine the the confusion that comes with that and the dilemma. So the idea came up in our ministry as we were trying to grapple with this this situation is, well, you know, what if he had a, a separate cabin of his own? Well, that would be considered discrimination. And so the law would step in and say, no, you have to allow this boy to stay on the side of the camp that he desires, that he identifies with. So these are some of the issues that are already coming into our church, and you're not going to change those. This isn't going to stop. This is going to come on even more. But we have to be ready. We have to be ready with the right answers to be loving and kind, receptive, and we also have to know where to draw the line as well. One of the questions that comes up many times in our Q&A is, um, when is a person ready for baptism? And so let me ask you a question. If If a couple came into your church and they were a heterosexual couple, and they had three children, but they were living together. Are they ready for baptism? They are? They're living together. They're not married, and they have three children. Are they ready for membership? No, no. They're living together. They're not married, and they have three children. They've got a whole household all set up. They're not ready for membership, and let me explain why. Because God cannot bless a union that hasn't, they're not married. Here's a man and a woman in a heterosexual relationship. They've got three kids, but they are not married. They're not ready for membership in the church, right? And so what do you want to do with them? Do you kick them out because they're not married? No. No, you study with them. You love them. You, you invite their kids to Sabbath school. You invite them over to your house for, for a nice Sabbath lunch and you study with them. And then eventually as the Holy Spirit illuminates their heart and they go, whoa, I've either got to leave her or I've got to marry her. Right? And then once they decide that they get married, then are they ready for membership? Yeah. Yes, they're ready for membership. And so if a, if a gay couple comes into your church and they've got three kids, are they ready for membership? No, but do they deserve to be there? Yes, and we need to establish relationships with them. We need to invite them to our houses for lunch. We need to invite them to participate in things in the church activity, but they're not ready for membership until what the Bible says, they show meat for repentance. That means that I had to turn away from my gay relationship. I had to turn away from my boyfriend. I had to turn away from my identity. I had to say, I'm no longer gay, but that I'm now a Christian and that I'm walking towards an identity in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Because if you baptize somebody when they're still actively uh, identifying as gay or in a gay relationship or even in a relationship where they're um, not married to the person that they're living with, what's happening is you're now putting the sick in charge of healing the sick. If you have a hospital, you only have two kinds of people in a hospital. You have health professionals and then you have the patients, right? And so what would happen if you took the patients and you made them in charge of healing the sick? (laughs) I know, there there go your eyes again. Yeah, yeah, so all of a sudden you've got the the sick trying to heal the sick. What's going to happen? They're all going to die. They're all going to die. But if the hospital were like the church, every hospital needs the patients because otherwise we would close its doors, right? The same in the church. The church needs people to come in at all walks of life no matter where they are in their understanding they deserve to be there and they should be nurtured and they should be loved and they should find acceptance there but the point of where we make the members and we baptize them they have to come to a point where they fully understand what they're getting into and that they fully understand the principles of the Bible and that they've made changes in their life so that their life aligns with the principles of the Bible and then they're ready to be baptized because baptism brings three things. It's a sacred position that gives them the right to vote. It also gives them the right to influence other people as teachers of Sabbath school, as elders in the church, right? Doesn't that make sense? And so we have to recognize that until somebody is ready for baptism, they have to show that their life is living in agreement with that, but also for their protection. You know, I was baptized with a boyfriend and a sexual addiction. The pastor did not know that I was still an active homosexual. I came in under the wire. And God says that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. But no pastor should have baptized me. Because imagine the shock when all of a sudden I found out that the church that I just got baptized into did not accept homosexuals in it, right? So that was a real shock for me. Okay, good. And so as I was coming into this agreement with Jesus Christ, he was walking with me. He was walking with me in this misguided understanding and and that even though I should not have been baptized, eventually he led me into all truth and I stand before you now. And so God's ways are perfect. But again, in the church, we need to have structure. We need to be nurturing and loving, but also we cannot put people in membership before they're ready. Make sense? Okay. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to, um, to present on behalf of all sexuality. And, Lord, you are so gracious. You are so good that because you've given us the answer for every sin, sin problem that is out there. I pray, Lord, that today that, um, that I have shown adequately that all sexual sin, Lord, destroys our ability to relate to you as a loving God. And I pray, Lord, that it's challenged our thinking that we need to be more loving. We need to be more kind to those that are on the other side, Lord, of your understanding and your compassion. But I pray, Father, that you will also help us to change the way that we think towards other people. And that, Lord, that we would respond to people the way that you do. And that we would love them and show them, Lord, that the Bible is not just truth. That it's got to be better than what the world is handing out. Because then, Lord, we would truly have something to equip people with and that we would actually be able to bring people into your kingdom where your desire and your delight, Lord, is to bring us home. So my prayer, Lord, is that as you work on our hearts, that you would change us from within and that, Lord, that we would experience that victory that only you can provide so that we could offer that to somebody else in our churches. Bless us and guide us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse